Let's start at verse 5. So Habakkuk 1, starting at verse 5. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard. Wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from afar. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And they shall scoff at the kings and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, and they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he, and maketh men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. They take up all of them with the angle. They catch them in their net and gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense unto their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? So far, let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these words, sober words, words that speak of judgment, words that confront us with the heinousness of sin, words at the same time that speak of your holiness, your greatness, your might. And so, Lord, may we be humble before you, and may we seek you as Habakkuk sought you. And may we learn from his pleadings this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're going to be dealing with verse 12, as that is a shift in the text from verses 5 to 11. And I have three points to draw out of verse 12. They are, number one, comfort from eternity. Number two, cherished as purity. Number three, considered through sovereignty. So comfort from eternity, cherished as purity, and considered through sovereignty. First of all, comfort from eternity. If you remember where we've been, verses 1 through 4 are Habakkuk pleading to God, saying, look, God, look at what our own people, your people, are doing. They are wicked. They're deceiving one another. And he pleads to God for action. That was verses 1 through 4. Verses 5 through 11, we saw God responds, and he says, I will work a work. And it is so great, it is so devastating, that even Habakkuk did not expect such a severe judgment from God. And so now in verse 12, 
he responds to that judgment from God and he pleads God's character. Verse 12 is really Habakkuk's faithful acknowledgement and pleading to God about who God is. And then verses 13 through 17, which we will look at next week, Lord willing, it is grappling then with all what you know about God with what God does. Okay, so what, who God is and then what God does. And it is all in the form of a prayer this morning. So, we have to remember that when our lives hit a major trial, whether it is financial devastation, whether it is a health crisis, or perhaps the death of a close one, or maybe as we see right now happening around the world, grave injustices, all of these must not cause us to be tempted to kind of resign ourselves to our fate, or as some people tend to do, to mope and to complain and to do nothing else. No, not to say, oh, that's just my lot in life and this is the way it is and I just got to shoulder this. That's not what Habakkuk does. We must not respond to trials like that. Instead, learn from Habakkuk, who as a believer takes the trials, these devastating trials, and pleads God's word, God's revelation back to him. Trials should drive us to prayer. Notice then that Habakkuk's response to these trials is not one of unbelief. Spoken with people, that's exactly what they do. I can't believe in a God who would. If this is what God does, I don't want any part of him anymore. That's not what Habakkuk does. Instead, he lays hold of God again and again. He really says, God, you are God. You are more than this. And so when the waves of violence and injustice and greed and avarice come crashing upon us and they may strike closer and more timely than we think, learn from the relentlessness here of Habakkuk's prayer. Because often we'll turn to someone else and say, what can you do? Can you help me? But when all those things fall away, we must turn to God. You see, what this verse 12 really does in the midst of a very horrific chapter, it brings hope in the midst of the struggles. But it all begins, dear people, it all begins with a high view of God. That is the beginning of all faith, a high view of our great God. You see, the tears and the struggles and the sorrow, they will fall down, won't they? The tears will fall down. But let our eyes, while the tears may drop, lift upwards to God himself, to look to the God we know from Scripture and nothing else. So first notice the shift in the text. From verse 11, where it says, imputing this his power unto his God, Right, that's what it says. So Babylon, Chaldea, basically is going to take all of her successes and impute or reckon that that was their god, Moloch, or whichever god they might serve, Bel and Nebo, and say they did this. And 
Habakkuk says, no way, because he says, art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God. The word everlasting, kedemah, in the Hebrew, is not very common. It's used relatively frequently, but the more common word for God's eternality is the Hebrew word olam, and that is not used here. So Habakkuk's choice of this more rare word, kedemah, is kind of interesting because it can also be translated as east. That's strange. Why is he picking up that word to speak of God's eternality? It is probably because if you look back at verse 9, which we read earlier, when talking about Chaldea, it said, they shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sop up as the east wind and it destroys. And they will come from the east to destroy the people of God. And now... Habakkuk says and uses the same word and says, no, no, God, you are from the east. But the word means from the days of the east, from the morning of the world, because the sun rises in the east and reaching back. He is, in effect, saying, Lord God, are you not the one who comes from the morning of the world? Are you not the one that comes from the place where the sun Rises, O Lord, yes, they shall sup up as the east wind, but you alone are truly from of old, from everlasting. Conclusion, therefore, power belongs to you alone, not to Chaldea. It will not belong to the armies of this world. It does not belong to our politicians. It does not belong to our police officers. And heaven forbid, it does not belong to you and to me. It belongs to God. Now, I was thinking about this as I was working through this text. I was thinking, well, it's easy to hold to any worldview when times are good. Oh, yeah, we can... We can believe in Darwinism, we can believe in materialism, we can believe in Islam, we can hold to the occult when times are good. But when tragedy hits close to home, when your life shatters apart, what do those worldviews really give you? You see, Darwinism, there is really not much dignity when trials hit and all you are is nothing more than an advanced ape that is comparatively more than the next generation, but really you don't know where it ends and you are nothing. There's no purpose in materialism when all we are really is a pop can fizzing, nothing more than a collection of molecules that are interacting and bouncing together. What kind of hope is that when tragedy strikes you? Islam, there's no hope in a deity who knows only justice, but has no mercy. One to which we must merit our own salvation and try to achieve what we can never do. There's no hope there. You see, he who is from everlasting God matters when times are tough. He matters in the trials. It is where we must find our hope. Here's a question for you. What defines your starting point for all your thinking? It's a question that's not often asked. I confront young people on this all the time. Where do you begin for who you are, where you've been, where you're going, what's wrong in this world? What's your starting point? Because it will define your end point. Habakkuk begins with God. 
Knowing that from God justice stems, from God purpose stems, from God there is mercy, from God there is hope, from God there is purpose. He's from everlasting. And think about it when you go through trials, you will not get all the answers. I, I've spoken with many people. Why is God doing this to me? God doesn't owe it to us to give answers. But he does tell us who he is. And there is an answer within his character that is enough for us. Isn't there? Worry, worry in the trials shackles us because in worry we look to the horizon and we think about what might come. It is seeing in worry you see the created. You see things that pertain to the earth. You see your crumbling finances, the what-ifs of what will happen if my son does this or my daughter does this? What happens if this sickness comes back? What will happen to my family if? And we're looking at the horizon of the created. But hope, as Habakkuk hopes, is looking past the horizon, isn't it? To where only the eye of faith can look. Hope is seeing him who is invisible. Him who is independent, self-existing, self-sustaining. God, our God, is free to do what he wants. God, the everlasting God, is sufficient in himself. He is perfect in love, eternally flowing between Father, Son, and Spirit was love from all eternity. That is the God to whom we look. He is immutable whose character is fixed and not changed by the vicissitudes of this life. And therefore, our God is completely trustworthy. He is unlike any creature. God's truth will stand as a pillar. His justice is uncompromising, and yet his mercy is overflowing and rich. God's whose purposes are not whimsical like ours may be. He's not reactive, seeing a situation, frustrating himself and saying, oh, what do I do now? That's not our God. Oh, no, he is definite. He is infinitely wise. God's love never manipulates us. It never disappoints. God's love is always sweet, always giving. And in all these things and a thousand more ways, God always was always is and always shall be. That is his self-revelation. I am that I am. And that is to whom Habakkuk please, the Almighty. Will we pray then as Habakkuk with expectancy, pleading, calling, Perhaps you came here in shock this morning with something that's happening in your family. Maybe you're just sitting here in wonder, wondering about the future of this world. But always reveal, or always steep your minds in the revealed truth of God himself. Do not find your hope in politicians, even though they met this week. Do not find your hope in the policies they will draft. Find your hope in the eternal God. In him we have an everlasting refuge from beyond the east from the days of eternity you know it would be it would be another prophet 
that would pick up the same word and proclaim the link between the everlasting God that Habakkuk clasps onto and his salvation. Remember this text, you're probably going to hear it in the next number of weeks as Christmas season approaches. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel. And then it says this, whose goings forth have been from of old, from the days of the east, from everlasting. The Lord Jesus, this ruler from all eternity, would one day establish, he has established, an eternal rule. And as it was with Babylon, so at Calvary's cross, remember what happened. It seemed for a moment at the cross that the princes of this world won, that the serpent had crushed the Christ, that the serpent had destroyed the holy line, the holy seed, because Christ was crushed at the cross. But it was precisely in that crushing that he who is from all eternity would rise again, defeat death, and precisely in that victorious resurrection, he now crushes the serpent and he rises to victory. You see, the hope of the everlasting God is this. He will conquer. Take hope in that. Take assurance in that. And lay on, lay hold of God as we think about that. Point two. Cherished as purity. Cherished purity. The next phrase, O Lord my God, mine Holy One. Strikingly throughout this entire prophet Habakkuk, we never see the term Israel, Judah, or Jacob. Nor do we see the term our God. It seems as if in Habakkuk the identity of Israel is being wiped as you wipe a chalkboard clean. But notice the words that Habakkuk uses here. He says, O Lord, my God. You see that in the text? Capital L, capital O-R-D. What is that? That is the holy covenant name, Jehovah. He links the eternality of God with his covenant faithfulness, his loyalty to his people, and he pleads for the people. That's what he's doing. And he basically, by bringing up the name Jehovah, he links, the, he links God's character back to the patriarchs. And he says, O oh God, you are him who chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Will you now cast off your people? Will you destroy them? And the answer that is emanating in Habakkuk's head is, no, that cannot be. That is not what covenant means. You see, covenant, when God initiates it, Covenant, when God calls it, is covenant that God will keep. Do you remember in Genesis 15, when God cut covenant with Abraham, and Abraham divided the animals in an ancient treaty ceremony where they would slice animals in two, and both covenant parties would pass between the animals as an oath saying, if any of us break this covenant, may we be cut in half. That's what a covenant was. And you remember what happens in Genesis 15. Who goes between the animals? It is not Abraham. Abraham's sleeping. But the covenant God passes through as a flaming torch. God cuts covenant. God keeps covenant. God will hold 
everything up. He alone will hold up his covenant people. God says to Israel, I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And therefore, dear church of God, we are the new covenant people of God. We are united to all those who are established in the seed of Abraham as believers. All of those who have the faith of Abraham. And we are then bound to a covenant-keeping God whose foundation is from eternity. And so find comfort when you see the name Lord Jehovah. Notice he calls him the Holy One. Where Christians are holy by Christ, we have what's called a derivative holiness. Our holiness comes from Christ into us. Not so with God. For God, his holiness is his essence. The Holy One. Nothing we can see, not the purest rays of the sun, not the most pristine of diamonds can hold a candle to the holiness of our almighty God. There is no impurity in him. There is no hint of vileness in our God. And thus when Habakkuk appeals to God, now as everlasting, as Jehovah, and now as the Holy One, it is pleading to the one whose moral excellence and whose absolute pure being will effect purposes that cannot be contaminated with sin. You see, until we acknowledge that God is in a league of his own, our prayers will reach too low. Who's the God we pray to? Is he the Holy One? Our prayers ought to be soaked in humility and awe. How often haven't I caught myself before a meal? We've got to pray before we eat, right? And we just quickly rush into prayer because our real goal is to get that food into my mouth as quick as possible. And we rush into prayer. How often don't we rush into prayer? Before we go to sleep because I want to sleep and I got to get this duty done. Oh no, dear people, we are praying to him who is holy. Let us stop. Let us pause and reflect on that. You see, a perplexed Habakkuk will bring up the holiness of God in verse 13 again. We will look at that next time. He's no fool when he brings this up. But he asks, how can Jehovah ordain such violence upon his people? How can he bring all this sickness and struggles and injustice? And he wonders how that can compute with a holy God. And he's grappling with that. But he never lets go of God's holiness while he does that. And so then, if perhaps your life is going through struggles and injustices, maybe somebody backstabbed you, Maybe somebody did a business transaction with you and, and was not honest, and you're dealing with that. Perhaps a sister called you this week and just laid into you. If you're treated that way, and you wonder how could God permit that, the one thing you must not countenance in your thinking is that God did wrong. That cannot be. It 
cannot be. Our God makes no mistakes. He does not compromise. He's unswervingly holy. The knowledge of the holy God was part of the fabric of every Israelite's life, wasn't it? If you go back to Deuteronomy and Leviticus and look at Numbers, you'll see piles of laws of unclean and clean, laws of holy and unholy. The community existence was soaked in the knowledge of the holy. Could it be that the fact that many Christians do not read their Old Testaments or hardly is one of the reasons we have very little time to talk about the holiness of God. How often have you read your Old Testament? How often are you reading Leviticus and looking at Israel's holiness codes to understand the great, solemn holiness of our God? Could it be that this is what's crippling Western churches You see, if you nod and say, if I asked you, do you believe God is holy? And you nod and you say, yeah, I believe he's holy. But you only say that because you were told that in Sunday school or your parents told you God is holy. That doesn't matter. Hollow duty, hollow knowledge without conviction matters little. Can I ask you a simple question? What are you convicted of regarding God. Do you really believe what you've been told? You see, because Habakkuk sees firsthand what happens to a nation who is steeped in these laws of holiness and unholiness, but they aren't convicted of it anymore. They go through the duties, the disciplines, but not the delight. Do you have delight? in our holy God? Or are you just duty, duty bound, discipline bound? That the God you know and you worship. Well, look what happened to Israel because it was only duty, it was only discipline, and it was not delight. Look what happened to them. Judgment fell them because their hearts were given to devastating wickedness. And so a love for the holiness of God presses us into a right fear of God. Nothing else will. The knowledge of the holy must be embraced. Do you embrace it? Because the holy God will establish himself a people who are holy, who keep their word, who are humble, who hate their own sins because they grieve our master. You know, you think about it. If God is holy and cannot countenance a drop of sin, then even the littlest sins that we kind of just think of peccadilloes, nothings, are massive before a holy God. Which sins are you overlooking? Perhaps it's when you're snobby and snouty with your siblings. Perhaps it's pride. You just say, well, everybody has that, so it's not a big deal. Perhaps it's indifference. Perhaps it's a lack of taking an interest in others. Perhaps you're not one anothering as the Bible calls us to one another. These are sins, dear people of God. 
Let us repent. Let us turn from them and, and seek and follow after holiness as the Bible calls us to. You know, the Puritan Richard Rogers, when he was said, somebody said to him, oh man, you're way too conscientious about how you walk. You know what he said? Oh, sir, I serve a precise God. Do you hunger for a holier church? Do you hunger for a holier love, a holier passion, a holier being? It can only happen when you love the holy God. And so notice that passion of Habakkuk when he says, my God, mine holy one. For Habakkuk, this is personal. This isn't just head knowledge. This is his heart embracing these things and laying hold of his God. It's like the Apostle Paul. Remember that in Galatians when he says, God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that? God who died for me. My God. My King. Little children among us this morning. Can you say he is mine? I know him. I know him. Can you say that? You see, Christian helplessness drives us to the God we know, the one that is our Savior. And therefore, as Habakkuk has to bring these difficult words to the covenant people of Israel, Similarly, when we have to bring difficult words to perhaps a brother or a sister or a child who needs to be disciplined, or we have to bring a difficult word to a boss or a co-worker, first, do what Habakkuk does. Go to God first, and then go and confront your brother or your sister. Go to the God you know. Plead for help. You know how many times... Haven't I gone and waltzed into a conversation confidently thinking, oh, this will be a piece of cake. This one's not too hard. And I fall flat on my nose. But when we go to God first, he is among us. We have pled to the God we know. They have been the best meetings when I have prayed the most about them. You see, the words, my holy God, are not just personal. They're also, also intercessory. Because Jehovah... The God is not just the God of the prophet. He's not just your God, believer. He is the God of his people, all of us. One God for all of the people of Israel. And every Israelite who believes may say, though we are broken, he is ours. Though the enemy has run down the gates of Zion, be confident that Jehovah will not let his covenant people go. And so as you cry out, Oh Lord, you are my God. Because that's what trials do, don't they? They cause us to cry, to plead as you do that. Is it not for this reason that ultimately we want his name to be glorified among all his people? There's something here that can really put the finger on our individualism. Habakkuk's prayer is for himself and the people. Christian, do not constrict your faith to the orbit of my home, my family, my friends, my little church here in Pinoca. Do you pray 
for the body of Christ? Do your personal prayers reflect corporate longings? Parents, when your children hear you pray, do they hear you longing for the body of Christ to be more holy? Or are all your prayers narrow, selfish, orbiting around the circle of your family? Habakkuk's personal prayers are for the whole body. Let us learn from that. Let us learn to seek the whole body's welfare. Look at the next phrase. O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we, we shall not die. Now he goes corporate. He embraces the very protection of God Almighty. He knows God will not destroy the nation. He knows that God will keep his promises that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, to Moses, to David. Even as Chaldea would run roughshod over Judah, they would plunder her. They would do violence, then captivity that would last for 70 years. It would not have the last days. He says, we shall not die. The name of Israel would not be wiped from the map, and we know that. Because we still know about these people, the Judahites, and on top of the which, the Israel of God continues in the people of God. The people of God will not be annihilated. Because God has separated them to himself. Oh, how this points to the Lord Jesus Christ, does it not? These, these my God, my Holy One, we shall not die, points to Christ. Because it was Christ who would bear the wrath of the Chaldeans, as it were, as the unholy people, the Romans, would crucify him and nail him to a cross. And Israel would turn a blind eye to their master. This great son, the new Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, would cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And unlike Habakkuk, who said, We shall not die Christ knew he would drink the wrath to the full, the dregs of the wrath of God. And what happened to Christ? He died. He died. But he rose from the grave. You see, Habakkuk's faith ultimately points to the God who himself would triumph through his own death. Jesus said this, because I live, ye shall live also. You see, believers, we are enclosed in the everlasting robes of our Lord Jesus Christ, and physical death brings us into the very presence of God. And so, go forth in hope, we shall not die. Go forth singing what, what we sang this morning, unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ, he lives, Christ he lives, therefore we shall not die. Let us have confidence then, not in our abilities. Don't have confidence in your bank account. Don't have confidence in your insurance policy, in your government bailouts, or in your police protection. We may not be spared, dear people, from sickness, from broken marriages. We may have unbelieving children. We may face death really soon. It may be this week that one of us passes into eternity. I just read about that dear brother who shows a picture on a website I'm following, healthy, 
And suddenly he gets diagnosed with cancer and he's in an emaciated body. And an old man of 80 who's on the same website, an old pastor, he says, perhaps, brother, you will be with our Lord before me. It can come quick. We don't know when. But all those things do not matter. We do not hold our lives here dear to ourselves. Our ultimate security, our true life is in the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I lived. And therefore, as you see the church battling heresies, as you see sometimes the entire denominations capitulate to heresy, as you watch the law of God being trampled under the mud in our society, we must not, we cannot, we shall not entertain thoughts that God will let go of us. He does not. You see, serving God is a precious mercy. Knowing Him is an incredible mercy. It is a sure hope. We shall not die because Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. There will always be a church of God. I always remember the story of Voltaire. Remember him? He hated God. And he said, in a hundred years, there will no longer be Bibles. We will get them out of our society. A hundred years later, there is a Bible society in the very house. He uttered those words. God will not let his people fall. So lastly, third point, considered through sovereignty. Habakkuk moves from God's being, who he is, to his purposes Again, beginning with the covenant name, he says, O Lord, O Jehovah, thou hast ordained them for judgment. And then look at the parallelism in the text. Thou hast ordained them for judgment. O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Both the words ordain and the word establish connotes firm, rigid counsel, an appointment. There's a permanence in God's words here. You see, Habakkuk doesn't speculate about what might happen. He doesn't excuse what happens. He does not even bring up the free will argument that the Babylonians are just doing what they are doing and God can't help it because he gave them a libertarian free will. He doesn't bring any of that up. He says, no, God, you are sovereign. He knows God appointed this. God established the Chaldeans to perform their godless acts. So let's be clear here this morning. Scripture knows nothing of a clueless God, nothing of a feeble God. He knows, it knows nothing of a subordinate God. It knows nothing of a frustrated God. Let's wipe those thoughts from our theological dictionaries. They cannot exist. Chaldea could not lift one finger. Not one arrow would fly outside of God's sovereign decree. As God says to the violent waves of the sea, which seem to just splash at will, in Job 38, 11, he says, Hitherto shall it come, and no further. He has ordained the rod. And so whatever the enemies of God may do against this church 
or the Church of Canada or the church around the world. It is according to the counsel of God. Perhaps the trials in your life seem to be getting worse, not better. Perhaps you wonder how long will God allow this to keep going on like this? Perhaps you wonder how long will God allow Canada to fall headlong into lawlessness and against the word of God? Perhaps you wonder that. How long will he permit tyranny to run? Maybe you shake your head at the pain of a broken relationship and you say, oh God, how much more? I can't handle anymore. How much worse must it get? Know this. It will not go one millimeter further than what God has purposed. It can't. It can't. Habakkuk, as we are, is perplexed, but he's also confident. He knows the wicked are a rod in God's hand, and they cannot strike without his power. What happens to you cannot be done without his permission. Now perhaps you cringe at the thought of correction, of chastisement. It can hurt. God may bring devastating destruction to us because of our sinfulness. But he will only mete out what he deems for our benefit. Have, uh, Hebrews says this, My son, despise thou not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Yeah, I take comfort from these words. O Lord, thou hast ordained them. I take comfort because I know then that since it is God, my eternal God, that has done this, that he has ordained this chastisement, I'm confident it will achieve what it was set out to do. The chastisement of God's people will bring the intended fruit. You see, God will instruct, he will strike to inflict a calculated pain. He will cut, yes, and it will hurt, but it will be with surgical precision of a doctor that seeks to heal, not with a soldier that seeks to kill. That's the goodness of our God establishing even the wicked for correction. Now notice in the last part of the text here how he says, O mighty God. The Hebrew here is unmistakable. It is O rock. That's what our footnote says. O rock. And every Jew would know that when that name gets no named of the Lord, their minds would flee back to the song of Moses. Please turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. The word rock gets used 77 times in the Bible. Not all of those refer to God. Many of them don't. They just turn, turn talk about a rock. But of any place in the Bible where the word rock refers to God, it is in Deuteronomy 32. 
Song of Moses that speaks of his, Israel's election, of Israel's idolatry, and of Israel's punishment. Look at verse 3 and 4. Because he says, I will publish the name of our Lord, Jehovah. Ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, referring to Habakkuk 1.5, where God says, I will work a work for all his ways are judgment, because God is bringing a judgment, mishpat, we've talked about that word, a God of truth and without iniquity. A God of truth is brought up in Habakkuk 2.4. Just and right is he. Now look at the reoccurrence of that word, that governs the whole song. Our God is a rock. A rock that is firm, faithful, and everlasting. Opposite of all the idols of this world. Look at verse 18. Israel forgot the rock that begat thee. Thou art unmindful and hast forgotten God that formed thee. Verse 29. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their end. How should one chase a thousand and put 10,000 to flight, except their rock had sold them, and the Lord, Jehovah, had shut them up. And then one of the most powerful verses that undoubtedly Habakkuk is pleading, for their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. He's basically saying all these idols, they're nothing compared to our God. Their rock is not as our rock. Look at verse 36. For the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he seeth that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. And he shall say, where are their gods? Their rock in whom they trusted. Again, the idols, which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. And now God says, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God with me. I kill, I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. Does that not echo what Habakkuk says? Oh Lord, you have ordained them. You have brought them about. And then in verse 40, one of the most shocking things that God can do, he swears by himself and he says, for I lift up mine hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I wet my glittering sword and my hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives, from the beginning of revengeances upon the enemy. Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, and will render vengeance to his adversaries, and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. Habakkuk, I strongly believe, is pleading back in his mind to Deuteronomy 32, knowing that God will accomplish his vengeance, first his discipline on his people, but then his vengeance on their adversaries. He knows God is a refuge and a protection. Dear people, 
the best way to go through trials then and afflictions from God is not to ask the question, how will I ever adjust? It is not to mope. It is not to be fatalistic. It is rather to ask the question, what and how shall I make these chastisements productive for my growth, for my holiness? What is the Lord Jehovah teaching me? The only reason you can even entertain such a question of what is God teaching me is because you already know who he is, that he is Jehovah, that he is a rock of defense, that he is sure and steadfast, and that the Lord Jesus, as the chief cornerstone of the church, the rock upon which the entire church is built, will hold his people it is Christ who is the rock upon whom the church can stand and stand firm. And it is the same rock that against whom, if any of you dare to confront Christ, dare to fall upon him, as the Bible says, you will be crushed to pieces. So in conclusion... Rather than letting hardship change your thinking about God or make you redefine God, rather it should make us trust the God of Scripture. Affliction actually then challenges you to worship Him, to make us see He is much greater than we ever thought He was. In trial, Habakkuk is unrelenting. He will not let go of his covenant God. He intensifies his resolve. And anew he casts himself upon his rock. Will you do the same? Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, when trials come, we want it to get easier. But Lord, would you sharpen the eye of faith to see you more, to hold fast to your character, to your being, and to know that you are perfectly in control. Oh God, shape us, humble us, and help us to find our rest in you. Lord, when our hearts are overwhelmed, lead us to the rock that is higher than we are. Amen.